So you see these accusations being used by by anyone. It was an extremely powerful weapon. It was sort of the the nuclear weapon of of, of American political skullduggery was to accuse someone of being a homosexual. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In a recent episode of Politicology Plus, as we enjoyed the afterglow of the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, which at long last secured marriage equality at the federal level, we discussed the remarkable progress the equality movement achieved in such a short period of time. As a sort of mile marker, I reminded our listeners that even our sitting Democratic president, Joe Biden, voted to outlaw gay marriage when he was in the Senate in 1996, and that even President Obama was opposed to full marriage equality until his famous evolution toward the end of his first term. But the relatively rapid political and cultural change we discussed then is also relatively modern in the much longer, more complicated, and often darker story of homosexuality in American politics. In fact, the stories of gay Americans involved in the highest levels of power in politics in Washington, D.C. have been shrouded in secrecy and sometimes even classified. That is, until someone came along determined to excavate these stories and perhaps more importantly, consider what they tell us about our present. That someone is James Kerchick, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. He's also a columnist for Tablet Magazine and a writer at large for Airmail. His reporting, his essays, his reviews have all appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, New York Magazine, and Rolling Stone. James, welcome to Political. Thank you. Let's start with the beginning. What made you decide to write this book in the first place? Well, as a journalist, you're always trying to find new stories that people haven't told before. And I came to Washington, uh, bushy-tailed and bright-eyed, in 2007 to work at the New Republic magazine. And I came to realize that this was a very gay city. There's lots of gay people working in all the branches of government. Um, but it, I also knew that it uh, was only relatively recently that those people could be out. And this was actually a time when a lot of people weren't out. I mean, there was a documentary that came out around that time called Outrage, which was about outing, the whole uh, outing um, controversies that were that were still very much going on in that period of time. Um, and I knew that the history of this town was one that was not very friendly to gay people, to say the least. So I um, I wanted to explore that. And I really trace my, uh, I trace the origins of this book back to when I was a student at Yale, and I was a a, a disciple of uh, Professor John Lewis Gaddis, who's really the the dean of Cold War historians, and he was teaching a seminar on the art of biography because he himself was engaged in writing a very important biography of George Kennan, a great Cold War strategist that later went on to win the Pulitzer Prize, and each of the students in the class, the final paper was you had to write. Uh, a biography on anyone living or dead, provided that their papers were held at Yale. And so I chose Larry Kramer, who was a very outspoken, controversial, colorful character. He was an AIDS activist. He was a playwright. He was a novelist. He uh, founded ACT UP, the AIDS activist organization. And he had been a student at Yale in the 1950s. And he he had a very difficult relationship with Yale because he had tried to commit suicide when he was a student there in the 1950s. Um, and he had just donated his papers uh, to the Yale Library, and so I decided to choose Larry. 
And I was one of the first people to examine those papers and I got to know him and interview him. And I really kind of, that, that was sort of like the merging of my two intellectual interests, which is this sort of, you know, traditional interest in, in, in Cold War history and American foreign policy. And that's kind of what I have specialized in in my day job as a journalist. I've worked overseas as a foreign correspondent. I worked at Radio Free Europe, which was one of the great sort of Cold War legacy institutions. Um, I'm, you know, I, I love spy fiction yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I have that interest. But then I'm a, I'm a gay person and I'm really interested in gay history. And so kind of the merging of these two subjects. And so, you know, after I started to work at the New Republic, I kept in touch with Larry and I would visit him up in New York and he would always be, you know, questioning me about various historical figures. And was that one gay? Is this one gay? He sort of saw homosexuality lurking everywhere. And, you know, at times he could be a little uh, promiscuous, if, yeah. if you will, in his sort of interpretations. <laughs> but the more I research this subject, the more I realize that it actually almost is everywhere that, that, that you look at in, in the Cold War period. And I found it popping up in all these surprising places where I didn't really knew that they had existed there before. For instance, in the, the OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA, there were a number of gay spies. You know, the Alger Hiss-Whitaker Chambers case, which, is, which was the trial of the century, really the, the kind of opening battle of the domestic Cold War kind of was the, the prelude to McCarthyism. There's a whole gay undercurrent in that in that debate. I mean, McCarthyism. There's yeah. a whole there's a whole gay aspect of McCarthyism. Um, Iran Contra. Who knew? There's a whole chapter in my book about you know gays in Iran Contra. And so I realized that there was a huge book to be written, yeah. and no one had you know maybe there'd been a uh, an article here or. You know, there was a, a short academic book written about the Lavender Scare in the early 1950s yeah. when gay people were purged from the State Department. But no one had tied all of this together. And uh, I knew it would, it, would, it would take a long time. It would yeah. be a very weighty undertaking. But it, it just seemed so fascinating to me. And I knew that I would be uncovering things that had never been discovered before. And um, there were, I was reaching a point in my career where I felt like as a journalist— um, I was kind of writing the same thing over yeah. and over again. Yeah. You know, Trump is bad. Trump is this, or you know, Putin is bad. Putin's and, and and for me, it was just getting a little tiresome. And so it was nice to kind of take a detour and work on something that you know, literally, no one else was yeah. exploring. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, uh, about the about the way political history in Washington and gay history in Washington. I think for most people are um, discrete. Yeah. And, I, and I mean E-T-E, not E-E-T, right? Right. Discrete. Um, but they're really intertwined. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about just how intertwined right. they were and how much how much more so you learned through the course of reporting this book. Yeah, well, I think the main thing I learned, which is that, is that homosexuality was really the worst possible thing you could be in Washington during worse the Cold than, War. Uh, worse than being a communist. And I can give some examples as to why that's the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, for instance, you mentioned the Whitaker Chambers Alger Hiss case. And Whitaker Chambers, for those who don't know, was a, a very famous journalist. He worked for Time magazine. And in 1948, he went public with these claims that a man named Alger Hiss, who was a very uh, well-credentialed State Department official, and at this point he had retired from the State Department. He was the president of the Carnegie Endowment, whose headquarters are just a couple of blocks from us. He was he was a he was referred to by someone as the the Jeeves of the Eastern Establishment. I mean, he was the Secretary General of the first meeting of the United Nations after World War II in 1945. He was a very well credentialed 
respected man. Whitaker Chambers accused him of, of having been a secret communist agent and that he himself, Chambers, knew this because he, he was a former communist agent and the two of them were in the same cell. Um, and so Chambers made these accusations and it became, I mean, it still is today, you look back on it, an extremely important political moment because so much of our current politics, I think, can be traced to kind of the 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 fissure, the the mm. the cleavage that that represented, right? You have conservatives to this day. What do they hate? They hate elites, yeah. right? And this was Today's Alger. Yeah. yeah, and Alger Hiss was the pinnacle of the elite. Yeah. And you know what? The elites rallied around him, <laughs> and it turned out Alger Hiss was a spy, and Whitaker Chambers was right. And you know this was the this was the, uh, the 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 beginnings of Richard Nixon's career. Richard Nixon was a young congressman. He championed Chambers, and he was ridiculed by you know all the Eastern establishment press and whatnot. And it turned out that Whitaker Chambers was right. But there was a there was a gay subtext to the Whitaker Chambers Alger his confrontation because Whitaker Chambers had been he had, he lived a gay life at the same time that he was living a secret communist life. He came out so to speak as a former communist. Hmm. When he went public, obviously, and he he admitted that he could never have come out as a former homosexual, as a practicing, as a practicing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he had given it up, and he. But the only reason we know this is because he confessed it to the FBI secretly hmm. in the run up to the here to the trial, because uh, Hiss was um, tried for perjury twice. Uh, Chambers divulged this to the FBI because the Hiss forces were kind of spreading rumors about this. They were trying to discredit Chambers on account of him being gay. They were basically intimating that Chambers was a spurned, vengeful homosexual, that he had been, that he had come on to, to Hiss, that Hiss had rejected him, and that the real reason for this isn't that, you know, Alter Hiss was a spy. It's because he, he, he re rejected this homosexual's advances. Um, but Chambers could have never come out as as a gay person or as a former gay person that would have immediately discredited him. Um, you could be a former communist hmm. in America. You could come out as a former communist. And in fact, some of the leaders, the main leaders of the American conservative movement, many of them were former communists, Whitaker Chambers. There were a number of others. You could not come out. You couldn't be formerly gay. You couldn't be formerly gay at that point. <laughs> this was before the ex-gay movement, yeah, right? So you right. couldn't do that. Um, I mean, there's another case that I talk about, a man named Frank Kameny, who was the first, uh, he, he was a, a PhD astronomer working for the federal government in 1957, and he was fired uh, for being gay in December 1957, which is two months after the launch of Sputnik. Mm -hmm. So this is the height of the space race, yeah. right? The height of the space race, here you have a Harvard-trained astronomer working for the Army Map Service, which is the predecessor to the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And what does the federal government do? They rather fire a gay man than use his talents in the war on communism. Yeah. Not even the ACLU would take Frank's case, right? That's how lonely the American homosexual was. So I think the, the intertwining comes in the fact that Washington is a city of secrets mm -hmm. and really has been since World War II. That's where I begin the book. The, yeah. the, the, the book begins on the run-up to World War II because World War II is when homosexuality is transformed from being you know, merely a sin, a medical condition, and a crime in yeah. all 50 states. The war changes it. To, now it's become a national security threat. And the yeah. reason is because it's this terrible, terrible, deep, dark secret. And the belief is that gay people would go to any lengths to protect that secret, and therefore they would be vulnerable to blackmail. Yeah, right. Um, and therefore gay people represented a vulnerability for the United States. The United States, yes. And so 
if Washington is a city of secrets and secrets are a form of currency, right? You can see that in the level of security clearance someone has. You know, is it top secret? Is it classified? Is it this level, that level? You had to deal with a lot of that in reporting this book? I had to, yes, I had to file many FOIA yeah. requests and absolutely. Um, but if Washington is a city of secrets and if homosexuality is the most dangerous secret imaginable, then that to me seemed like, wow, this is a really fascinating yeah. topic to explore. How did this secret impact yeah. everything? Yeah. You know, everything from the uh, beginnings of, 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 of the Cold War to the rivalry between the CIA and the FBI, the way in which accusations of homosexuality were weaponized and were used against people for political purposes. You know, Republicans using it against Democrats, but Democrats using it against Republicans. Uh, you know, liberals would use this. That's another thing I learned in researching this book was that our modern concept of gay rights as a sort of liberal progressive cause, that was not really the case until the 19, the mid to late 1970s. Yeah. Prior to that, there was no such thing as a gay-friendly politician. Um, I had just mentioned the Alger Hiss Whitaker yeah. Chambers case. You yeah. had the progressives, the left, using homosexual smears and homophobia against a conservative. Yeah. The first outing in American politics that I write about was of a conservative Democratic senator, David Walsh from Massachusetts, who, had been, who, had, who was an isolationist, and he opposed F FDR, a member of his own party. Um, he was accused by the New York Post, which at the time, as hard as it might be to imagine, was a, was a liberal newspaper, the New York Post, in the early 1940s. <laughs> um, the New York Post was a, was a pro-New Deal, pro-FDR newspaper. They accused Walsh falsely of frequenting a, a, a gay brothel in Brooklyn that was near the Brooklyn Navy Yard and supposedly frequented by Nazi spies. <laughs> None of this was true. Right. But they were using these accusations, and FDR was sort of secretly supportive of this effort against a member of his own party because he he was a conservative uh, member of his own party. He, yeah. he, he was an isolationist. So you see these accusations being used by, by anyone. It was an extremely powerful weapon. It was sort of the, the nuclear weapon of, of, of American political skullduggery yeah. was to accuse someone of being a homosexual. You mentioned D.C. being a city of secrets, which indeed it is. Um, but you start off the introduction, somewhere in the introduction, you mention how essentially the, the, the community of people, uh, of, of gay people, was a city unto itself. And I almost thought of it as a city within a closet. Yeah. Right? So I wonder, I want to spend a little bit of time on place mm -hmm. um, and have you talk about what is unique about the social structure in Washington Right, that makes the dynamics of gay history different from it would be than in, in places like New York or L.A. So I think the major difference is that the main employer here, really, you know, certainly during the Cold War, almost the exclusive employer, right? The federal government was an extremely hostile work environment, <laughs> if you want to use that. I mean, gay people were not allowed to hold jobs in the federal government um, officially from April 1953, which was when Dwight Eisenhower signed an executive order prohibiting those guilty of sexual perversion, which mm -hmm. was the term that was used in the executive order and that meant homosexuals. Um, they could not have any job in any sector of not only the federal government, but federal contractors, which you have to imagine in the 1950s and during the Cold War is a huge, I mean, I think it's something like 20 to 25% of all jobs in the United States were yeah. either, you know, government or federally contracted jobs. So 
you have that environment, but you also at the same time have this phenomenon of, of lots of gay people coming to Washington, right? Because if you're a gay person in the 1940s or 1950s, you want to escape your small town. I mean, this is the whole, really Still the- Still do. Yeah. But certainly the broader story of kind of gay demography in the 20th yeah. century is urbanization. Yeah. It's people leaving small towns, particularly after World War II, which was a major moment in gay history because it's really the first time you have gay people realizing that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. they're, they're being forced into these you know, single-sex environments with people of all different socioeconomic backgrounds, yeah. and they're recognizing that, oh, there are other people who have this condition that I have. And so World War II has been kind of referred to as a national coming out moment. And then in the aftermath, so, and so you have, even, even during the New Deal, you had gay people you know, swarming to cities and, and coming to Washington. And gay people, particularly gay men, I think were, were and still to this day, to some extent, had a unique set of advantages that made them really good at politics. Um, I mean, if you're not married and you're not having children, you have time to accompany your boss to late night meetings, or you can answer that phone call at two in the morning. I mean, you're just more available. A lot of things that still hold true. Well, still yeah. hold true. And then yeah. there's just you know, then there's the whole best little boy in the world mm -hmm. syndrome, which mm -hmm. is the title of Andy Tobias's uh, kind of seminal memoir about you know gay men who who learn early that that they have they have a really dark, bad secret that they have yeah. to keep. And in order to compensate for that, they're not going to, you know, chase girls and whatnot. They're going to put all their work into being really, really all their efforts into being really yeah. hard workers. And they're going to, they're going to uh, uh, join all the extracurricular clubs. They're going to be the best student in the class. They're going to excel yeah. so that no one will maybe question. Yeah. Um, you know, the State Department. I came across a number of of gay men who worked in the State Department in the 1940s and 50s. Was it was a particularly attractive place if you were a gay person? Because, I mean, think about it. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to travel the world. You're to, unattached. To, yep, you're unattached. Uh, people aren't going to ask you necessarily. You know, where's the wife and kids? Oh, I'm. You know, I, I have postings every two years. I'm moving to a new, uh, yeah, new location. Yep. Yeah, you can go. You can travel the world to countries perhaps that might be more tolerant of homosexuality than the kind of puritanical United States at the time. So because of this, a lot of gay people were coming to Washington in spite of its being yeah. this really difficult place. And so that makes it very different from New York, where in certain um, professions, theater, fashion, art and culture, you know, even in the 1950s and 60s, you know, it was not a great place to be gay in America, yeah. but you could find pockets in places like New York that were relatively tolerant. Um, maybe it was kind of a wink, wink, nudge, yeah. nudge thing, but you could you could succeed in you as a as a relatively openly gay person in certain professions. Um, you know, San Francisco was San Francisco didn't really become a gay mecca until the 70s. Yeah. It certainly had a gay subculture. Um, started, I think, around World War II because it was a, it was a big port city. Right. right. Um, but those places they obviously have rich gay histories, but to me, as it wasn't as dramatic yeah. because the oppression right. wasn't there. Right. I mean, Washington is this common, as, as a journalist, as a historian, and you're looking for dramatic stories to tell. You know, this is a city that had, that really waged a war yeah. on gay people, yet at the same time 
had so many of them. Had so many of them working at the highest at levels. all levels at all levels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is one I, I'd love to explore this a little bit more because you talk about status in the book, and uh, and you write that um, even in Washington, where your job is often uh, a coveted status symbol, uh, and even today, this is this dynamic characterizes DC a, a lot. Um, gay men and lesbians wouldn't ask each other what they did for a living. And uh, and there was this sort of meeting of different classes and different social statuses that kind of fell away in these gay spaces. And so I wonder if you can speak to what was so jarring about that dynamic for people outside the gay community. Yeah, one of the other things I learned in this book was that um, I, I, I was familiar with the kind of varieties of yeah. homophobia. Uh, there's probably the, mo- the one that we're all most familiar with, which is sort of the religiously based sure. yeah. Judeo-Christian that can be found in the Bible, uh, Leviticus, yeah. right? And that's been there for millennia. Yeah. There's the um, the medical, the, the medicalized psychological um, uh, analysis of homosexuality, which is that it's a mental sickness. And you can have plenty of secular people who weren't weren't going to church every Sunday, but who listened to the American Psychiatric Association, which put homosexuality in its in its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as a mental disorder. Gay people were shipped to, they, they were institutionalized. They were uh, subjected to electroshock treatment. They were castrated. Um, so that's kind of the medical hatred of it. And then there's the legal form, which is that this is a, it's a crime to be gay. Uh, you know, gays are sexual uh, psychopaths. There's actually a law in D.C. called the psych- Sexual Psychopath Law that uh, sent lots of gay people to St. Elizabeth Hospital, right? But there was this other form of homophobia that I hadn't really been aware of until researching this book, which was this fear that homosexuality was a phenomenon that transcended all societal divisions, that you could walk into a gay bar or you could look at the gay community, so to speak, and there would be black gays, there would be white gays, there would be rich ones, there would be poor ones, there would be ones from the Midwest, there would be ones from the Northeast, there'd be ones who went to private schools, there'd be ones who went to public schools. Everyone is is part of this community. And while today, that's, I think, one of the great things about being gay is I can visit any city in the world, and I know that there'll be a community of people who all have something in common. I think to kind of like very, to, to socially conservative America in the 1940s or 1950s, this was terrifying. Because if you believe in hierarchies and, and, and um, you know, status or, 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 or whatnot, this this could really frighten you. And so it plays into this fear, right, that gays were not loyal to their country, that they were loyal to, and this was a term I came across, a, the Hominturn, the homosexual international, which was a play on the common term, the communist international, right? Yeah. So it was actually an article. It was, a, it was about the Hominturn, right? So the, it's like gays are not loyal to their country. They're loyal to this kind of secret international fraternity, yeah. like they're the Masons yeah. or something, right? Um, one of Harry Truman's advisors was, you know, describing why homosexuals represented an intelligence threat. And he's talking about, well, you can, you know, you can insert a very handsome chauffeur into the entourage of a foreign diplomat, right? And then he can seduce the foreign diplomat. And so it's, it's homosexuality threatens, it's kind of the ultimate democracy and it, and it sort of threatens these hierarchies. Um, and so that comes up repeatedly in the kind of fear-mongering about gay people. That was surprising. Can you um, talk about the connection people made between status and 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 sexuality? What do you? What do you? I mean, like, um, 
Oh, you, you, you mean like um, uh, uh, socioeconomic status? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, homosexuality was seen as sort of a bourgeois, even upper class um, condition, yeah. right? Which is that uh, gay men are a fet. Uh, they don't work with their hands. Um, you know, working class people have to work with their hands and whatnot. It's an idle kind of pastime that, you know, if you go to boarding school, uh, you can you can indulge in. Hmm. Um, and so it becomes associated with this sort of waspy, upper class group. Yeah. And this is, I think, part of the reason why, frankly, in American popular culture, when we're when 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 we kind of mock or make fun of British men, yeah. there's a real undercurrent of kind of homophobia. It's that they're foppish, they're they're well tailored, yeah. they're effeminate. Mm -hmm. And that has to do partly with with the kind of boarding school culture of Britain, but also because we look up at British people, and it's stupid that we do this, mm -hmm. but we do, as being more refined mm -hmm. and, you know, upper class and snobby or whatever, because those were the British people that most Americans were coming into contact right. with. You know, if, if I mean... We, Never entered any dirt under their fingernails. Right, exactly. Right. So homosexuality is seen as a... It, it becomes associated with the upper classes, and this comes to play... In the, in the battle, the early battles between the CIA and the FBI. The FBI was you know, founded by J. Edgar Hoover, and that's a whole other subject yeah. we can possibly get into. But the FBI uh, was recruiting you know, working class, largely kind of Catholic, um, what, we would, what we used to refer to as maybe sort of um, white ethnics, Poles, Czechs, Hungarians, people of that descent, those were the people who were going to work for the FBI. It was a domestic intelligence organization. The CIA, in its early years, was heavily recruited. It was heavily. It was basically founded by Yaleys, and it had a lot of people who went to you know boarding school and then went on to Ivy League schools. They were joining the CIA. The CIA, you know, you you had to have multiple foreign languages. You were traveling overseas. It was a cosmopolitan, and it was. Oh, by the way, in these early years, this might also shock people. Was it was it was a liberal. Institution. Hmm. I mean, the 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 CIA certainly was, and that's one of the reasons why McCarthy went after it is because it was seen as being too liberal and too soft on communism. Wow. Um, and so, the FBI would use these accusations of homosexuality against CIA officers, um, and it had some weight because the CIA, like the State Department, which was very similar in recruiting people from educate well educated privileged backgrounds. Um, homosexuality becomes the sort of symbol of what these institutions represent, and accusations of homosexuality become a sort of um, a substitute for yeah. for a kind of class based resentment. Yeah, yeah. You also write about this shift that happened. Uh, okay, the class based resentment, yes, but you also talk about the shift that happened um, when people associated gay men and lesbians with fascist sympathizers mm. and, 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 yes. and then <laughs> when communism, you know, became the bigger threat, right. almost overnight gay men and yeah. lesbians pa painted as, uh, as communists, yes. right? Can you talk more about this notion that gay equals bad, yeah. right? That it just, it, it is the substitute for every, for the boogeyman, right? It becomes the boogeyman. Yeah. yeah I just, mean, this is another recurring theme I came across uh, in the in the 1930s, one of the earliest stories I write about is a man named William Bullitt, mm -hmm. who was a, the first ambassador to the Soviet Union, and he teamed up with Freud, Sigmund Freud, who was his analyst. And the two of them wrote a book. It was a psychobiography of Woodrow Wilson. And this is long before we sort of made um, 
putting our presidents on the couch as kind of a, a national pastime. They each had reasons to resent Wilson. Bullitt had been uh, a diplomat in the Foreign Service and had clashed with Wilson over the League of Nations. And Freud was very resentful towards Wilson because of the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that happened after World War I. And the two of them wrote this book where they basically alleged that uh, Wilson was a repressed homosexual and that the reason he was so kind of, you know, weak in standing up to France and Britain who really wanted to punish Germany and Wilson wanted to go easier on them was because he was, you know, he had these like, he had this repressed homosexuality that he wasn't able to deal with. And they, and that was kind of their explanation for how, you know, Europe fell apart in the interwar period. And then in World War, in the years leading up to World War II, the Nazis became very much associated with uh, homosexuality. And there was a grain of truth in this in the sense that the leader of the SA, known as the Brown Shirts, was a man named Ernst Röhm, who was gay. Hmm. He was gay. And Hitler actually kind of tolerated it for a while. <laughs> he was useful. He was useful and he was a total brute and a, and a, and a, and a menace. Um, but then very early on, one of the first things Hitler does is known as the Night of the Long Knives, where he basically kills the leaders of the SA because they represented a threat to his power. Um, but, but the kind of mere existence of, you know, Rome spread into all these theories that the Nazis were gay. I mean, what it really boils down to is, uh, and we do this today, by the way, you look mm -hmm. at QAnon. What is, mm -hmm. what is the substance of QAnon? It's pedophilia. It is, yes. It <laughs> is we attribute the, the most, the worst sexual depravity yeah. to our political enemies. The elites. Elites, whomever. And so when America was fighting Nazis, not the Nazis were gay. And then when we were fighting communists, well, communists are queers and queers are communists, according to Joe McCarthy. Um, uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I have a chapter on this. I mean, if anyone's seen the movie JFK, go back and watch it. I mean, the movie is, the movie is not basically, it is alleging that, that, that the, uh, a cabal of right-wing homosexuals killed John F. Kennedy as part of a homosexual thrill killing. And this is based on a real prosecution that occurred in New Orleans in 1967 and 1968. Um, so like the worst things that happen can all somehow be traced back to the sexually depraved. Um, and for most of our history, that was gay people. They were the most sexually depraved people. And so they therefore bore the brunt of this. Now it's kind of pedophilia, and 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 now we attribute that to our political enemies. What do you trace that that inclination to? That it, does, it, does that? I don't know if you come across this anywhere, but is there um, something sort of sociological that that you're aware of that lends us to finding a substitute, like a like a whipping boy for? Uh, do you know what I mean? It's a good question. I think I would need uh, a degree in psychology yeah, to sure. answer that question. But look, I think political. One of the other things I learned about this book is that our, as much as we think our political rhetoric today yeah. is the worst it's ever yeah. been, it's really not true. I mean, you can go yeah. back to the founding of the Ameri of, of the United States, and I actually write it in the book that there was a newspaper publisher who who was supporting. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, yeah. and he, Adams, he accused John Adams of being a hermaphrodite, yeah. you know? And so th this, this, uh, the, um, the accusation that one's political enemies are somehow sexually unnatural or sexually depraved is a very long, proud, uh, I should say ignominious, <laughs> um, tradition in, yeah. in, in, in this country.
Okay, let's talk about the lavender scare. I uh, I think it's pretty common for people now uh, to think of the lavender scare as uh, you know the lavender scare list as a, as a B or C plot of McCarthyism. But can you talk about the prominence of the anti-gay sentiment in that era and and why you think the red scare is taught more prominently than than the lavender scare? Because I, yeah. full candor, I wasn't very familiar no, with the lavender mass, scare. Most like, people aren't. Everybody knows about McCarthyism. I think very few people actually. And as a gay person, I had no idea that it was this extensive. So, February 9th, nineteen fifty, Joe McCarthy delivers his infamous speech to the Republican ladies of Wheeling, West Virginia, where he takes a piece of paper and says he it contains a list of 250-something communists in the State Department. That number, by the way, varied by the day. <laughs> he, he would be interviewed later and said that there were 86. I mean, no one really knew the actual number. Um, just a couple of weeks later, you know, Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, is called to testify to answer these charges. And he brings a deputy under Secretary of State with him who, in passing, he's going through the numbers of people who have been dismissed from the State Department for various reasons, including alleged left-wing or communist sympathies. And he lets slip that 91 homosexuals had also been fired over the previous three years. And this comes as a shock. No one knew that there were these nests of homosexuals in the State Department. And so that's really what kicks off the Lavender Scare. And in fact, uh, there was a newspaper column I came across that said that in the months after this revelation, you know, only 25% of the mail that Joe McCarthy was getting from people across the country was concerned primarily with communists in the State Department. The vast majority had to do with sexual perverts in the State Department. Um, and so this is a major part of the McCarthy era. And I think the reason why it didn't get as much attention was the fact that there, was no, there were no visible victims of it. I mean, there was no one willing to come out and say, I'm a, you know, I'm a victim of this. I'm a homosexual. The city in the closet. Right. So you had all these thousands of people. I mean, the worst, again, the worst thing you could be was to be known as a, gay, as a, as a homosexual. So these, these people would be called in. There'd be a very kind of cursory kangaroo court style interrogation, and they'd be fired on the spot. And no one was willing to challenge that until I mentioned earlier, Frank Kameny in 1957, but that's seven years into this thing. He's the first guy to do it. So in that interim, you have all these thousands of people being um, kicked out. There was no one willing to defend them. You know, you did have people defending, um, there, there were people willing to call out McCarthyism for what it was doing. Um, there, 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 sorry, there were people willing to criticize McCarthyism on the grounds that, yes, we understand communism is bad, but you're going too far, right? And McCarthy himself is called out very famously in 1954 during the Army McCarthy hearings, another issue that has a whole homosexual subtext to it. He's called out in that famous moment with Joseph Welch, the lawyer, you know, have you no decency, sir, right? So there were people who were willing to criticize McCarthy that he was going too far on the communism front. Everyone was in agreement. Hmm. Everyone was in agreement that homosexuals needed to be purged from the government. There was really no one willing to stick their neck out, certainly not in the Congress or the Senate. I mean, there was, you know, uh, there's a newspaper journalist who I read about, a guy named Max Lerner, who was a columnist for the New York Post, who actually did the spade work of coming down to Washington. He wrote a 12-part series where he's, inter he's interviewing doctors, he's interviewing, you know, government officials, and he, co he comes to the conclusion that, yeah, you know, these homosexuals, they're sick and they need help, but there's no evidence that they represent a greater threat to the country than, you know— the husband who's cheating on his wife or the alcoholic or whatnot, right? But beyond that, there's there's no one questioning the gay, the anti-gay aspect of McCarthyism. What a heretic. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you talk about the, the tension from President Reagan having lots of loyal foot soldiers who were gay while courting the religious right mm. at the same time? I want to just spend a little time on the Reagan era so now. The, yeah. And, I mean, the Reagan stuff I think is up, it's probably the most fascinating part it, it of the book. Yeah. And, you know, I begin that story with Ronald Reagan in one of his early movies he's in. Um, it's called Dark Victory with Betty Davis, great gay icon. Um, and this was during the code era when you could not explicitly depict homosexuality on screen. Was it the MPAA? No. Yeah, it was uh, the, it MPAA. Was the, MPAA. the MPAA. Right. They had something called the Hayes Code. Um, and one of, one of the things you couldn't depict alongside drug use and white slavery was homosexuality. But he was in this movie. He was being directed by a bisexual British director. And, he, and Reagan recounts in the memoir that he published while running for governor um, that he was, he was he, the, the, the direction that he got from the director was that I want you to play this character. He was, he was playing Betty Davis's friend. I want you to play him like he's the sort of guy who can sit in the ladies' dressing room and dish with the girls while they while they take off their blouses, which is a very roundabout, euphemistic way of saying, I want you to play her gay best friend, right? And Reagan takes real umbrage at this. He doesn't want to do this. It makes him very uncomfortable. Um, and so when he's running for governor, um, after he's elected, Early in his tenure, there's a there's a big gay scandal where a newspaper columnist named Drew Pearson, uh, who's a recurring character in the book, he's a real kind of muckraking Washington newspaper columnist. Um, he alleges that there were there that there was a, a basically a cell of gay men working for Ronald Reagan, and that they had an orgy at a timeshare in Lake Tahoe, and Reagan had to fire two of them. And Reagan initially denies it, uh, and then he. Two weeks later, he relents and he says, I did fire these men, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit to it because I didn't want to hurt their families. And I thought it was a matter of privacy. He's actually has something of a point. And he, his, 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 his anger at Pearson was, was justified. Jack Kemp would always be associated with this story because he had he had co-owned the timeshare in which this alleged orgy took place. There's no evidence that. I mean, first of all, there's no real evidence that, that an orgy ever took place. It's unclear even what happened. Two men were fired on suspicion of being gay. Um, but Kemp's name would always be um, associated with this. And in 1980, when Reagan was running for president for the first time, they his campaign um, wouldn't uh, uh, basically eliminate Kemp from the list of possible running mates. Um even though he was, a, he would have been a very strong, yeah, anyway, otherwise, yeah. And related to that, I mean, one of the big discoveries of my book, um, which I found in Ben Bradley's papers, was that in the summer of 1980, this, 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 this rumor that Reagan was surrounded by gay men kind of made a a return when a number of moderate to liberal con Republican congressmen who did not want Ronald Reagan to secure the nomination. They brought a, a dossier full of these allegations about a number of gay men who were supposedly controlling Ronald Reagan as if he were a Manchurian candidate. That was the term that was used. Interestingly, Dick Cheney was one of the congressmen who was involved in this. They brought this manila folder full of uh, allegations to Ben Bradley, and they said, you better investigate this. This is three weeks before the convention, the, the Republican convention. 
The Post did investigate it. They did find that there were a number of gay men around Reagan, but they couldn't put together a story that they were kind of, you know, working in cahoots to do anything nefarious. Um, and so they, the Post never published this story. I found the notes from the investigation in Bradley's papers, but it showed you that the, the, the Reagans were sort of haunted, I think, by the issue of homosexuality. You know, he came from Hollywood, which was, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, New York being a more hospitable place. Hollywood for a time, in spite of the code, Hollywood was a was a relatively open place to be a gay person. You could work. You couldn't be open. I Off mean, camera. <laughs> right. You could work. But, um, you know, they were friends with Rock Hudson, speaking of gay Hollywood yep. stars. They knew gay people. I mean, and, and Nancy was in particular surrounded by them. I have a, in the book, in the photo insert, I have an entire page. And it just says, uh, all the first ladies' men. And it's just pictures of Nancy with her hairdresser, with her dress designer, with her, you know, her best friends, with her political advisor, all these gay guys who surrounded the Reagans. So the Reagans were personally quite comfortable around gay men. And also a lot of gay people supported Ronald Reagan. Um, and the reason for this is, again, I mentioned earlier that homosexuality doesn't really become a political, it, it doesn't become a partisan political issue really until the late 70s or even in the 80s. And in fact, yeah, and in fact, you find a lot of gay people being quite libertarian in their politics for understandable reasons. I mean, to be a gay person and a gay man in particular in the 1950s and 60s was to be uh, like, a, like a dissident in a totalitarian country. I mean, your mail is being read. Your magazines are being impounded by the Postal Service. Your bars are being raided. Your phones might be tapped if you're involved in politics. And so the government is seen as the enemy, and you just want your personal liberty and your personal freedom. And so a number of gay men were involved in the founding of Young Americans for Freedom, I write about. Harvey Milk was a, was a supporter of Barry Goldwater in 1964, right? Became, before he went off to San Francisco and became a kind of left-wing political figure, that's he was gonna, a supporter of Barry Goldwater. That's going to blow a lot of people's minds. Yeah, Randy Schiltz. Randy Schiltz, yeah. the great gay journalist who was Harvey Milk's biographer and wrote in The Band Played On, he was a Barry Goldwater supporter as well. So you have this kind of gay libertarian nexus that exists. And don't forget, in 1978, the state of California had a ballot measure that would have banned gay people from teaching in public schools. It was called the Briggs Initiative. If you've seen the movie Milk, it's depicted in that. John Briggs is depicted. And Harvey Milk is kind of portrayed as the hero yeah. who defeated the yeah. Briggs Initiative. It's not true. It was Ronald Reagan who came out publicly against the Briggs Initiative on very kind of libertarian grounds, saying this is a violation of personal privacy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it'll, it'll, there'll be all these lawsuits. You'll have all these students accusing their teachers of being gay because they're angry at them. And they'll, it'll just drive up, you know, the trial lawyers yeah. will have a field day. He made a very kind of conservative libertarian case against this. And Ronald Reagan's intervention against the Briggs initi initiative flipped it. I mean, it was, that, that measure was going to pass. It was, it was leading 58-42 in the polls. Ronald Reagan opposed it. It lost by that same margin, right? So, the Reagans come to office in 1980, and there's really no reason to think that what would happen over the Reagan years, right, the indifference to AIDS yeah. and all that, yeah. there's no reason to really necessarily see that. I see mean, it Reagan, coming, right? To see it coming. Yeah. I mean, so I— um, In retrospect, it doesn't look good. In but, retrospect, it doesn't look good. At the, time, yeah, at the time, it didn't—Jimmy it, 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 Carter—I mean, again, gay rights were not a big political issue, Okay. Um, and there was no, there was no real reason to think that Jimmy Carter was going to be, you know, this great trailblazer 
as opposed to Ronald Reagan. It just wasn't really on the agenda. And there was some reason to think that Ronald Reagan might be pretty good. And of course, things did not, not play so out that way. <laughs> right. um, and I think it's because of, you know, how did Reagan, and by the way, so Reagan was attacked by Jerry Falwell in 1978 because of his position on this. Um, he was attacked publicly. Uh, and then he comes, but then two years later, he's running for president and he, and he wins with the strong support of this new voting bloc, evangelicals, right? Who had supported Carter in 76, but were very disappointed by him for a number of reasons his welcoming of gay activists to the White House for the first time in 1977 was part of it. So Ronald Reagan comes to office with the support, the backing of these evangelicals. And, I, and, and that, I think, plays... You know, I, don't, I don't think the Reagans were, necessar- were, were, were personally homophobic, certainly not more so than the average person of their generation. I think it was a political calculation that they had this huge base of people who were supporting them for um, a specific set of issues... And so when this disease, it's like the worst timing, right? This disease strikes in the summer of 1981, just six months into the Reagan administration. It was not something that they wanted to, yeah. to deal with. It, it just wasn't much. a priority. And you know, this was morning in America yeah. and talking about this disease that was affecting homosexuals, Haitians, and drug users was just not something that comported with that image and that yeah. message that they were they were trying to I mean, send. To put it really crassly, it's you're spending a lot of political capital on yeah. a downer yeah. when you're trying to go the opposite sure. emotional direction. Sure. Yeah. Um, you close the book, and I don't want to talk too much. The Reagan part really is the best part, so I don't, I don't want to give mm-hmm. too much of it away. Sure. You should go, you get the book, and especially zoom in on this piece. Although you can read it in chunks because it's, it's sort of separated by president, by era. So it's really a compendium of vignettes, I think, about these beautiful stories. Um, uh, but I want to talk really quickly. You close the book with Clinton, and that mm. is sort of the first time, um, in contrast to Reagan, Clinton, uh, you close with this, this, this bit about Clinton talking to a group of gay people yeah. saying, you're part of my vision, yeah. right? Have a vision and you're part of yes. it, which was actually for the first time uh, the, um, gay people were seen as maybe small, not insignificant, but a political force, yeah. a political uh, cohort to be included. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, he gives a speech in May 1992. Um, he I, he wasn't the nominee yet, but he was basically right. the presumptive nominee. And he becomes the first you know, major party nominee to appeal to the gay community. Um, and it's a pretty rap, it's, it's a pretty remarkable shift when you consider that no one had done that before, yeah. and that quite the opposite, that gay people had been attacked and ign- or ignored at best, right? To actually have a candidate come out on the campaign trail and openly appeal to gay people. I see you. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and then also, once he's elected, it's the first time that the gay rights organizations are sort of enlisted in helping to recruit openly gay presidential appointees. Right. This is now a very... It's kind of a big business with Democratic administrations. Huge business. Right? I but mean, the, the HRC is just an extension yeah, of the DNC. Right. Yeah. But this was a big thing in, in, in 1993. Uh, there was a, a gay and lesbian inaugural ball. Um, and I think we, we look back again retrospectively on the Clinton era, and, we, and, it, and I've done this. I've criticized Clinton for, again, it's always Don't Ask, Don't Tell, mm-hmm. the Defense of Marriage Act, mm-hmm. which were appalling yeah. and bad. Um, and I mention them in the book. 
But in terms of the book I was writing and showing this kind of remarkable transformation in the status of gay people, the Clinton years were really important because it was finally this era when the government was no longer going to make war on on gay people. And the other important thing that happened in 1995, the same year – or sorry, in between uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the Defense of Marriage Act was – the lifting of the ban on gay people being able to receive security clearances, yeah. which to go back to what we were talking about earlier is the real, real uh, ticket to power yeah. in this town, right? You can't get a you can't get a job yeah. in the most sensitive, powerful committees if you're a Hill staffer, right? Mm-hmm. You want a job in the intelligence community, you need a yep. you need a security clearance. If you're working in the Commerce Department, there are many jobs where you need a security clearance, right? So f- for that to finally be lifted yeah. in 1995, I decided to end the book there. It was a hopeful note. Yeah, but also because this was really a book about the interaction between homosexuality and the national yeah. security state. Yeah. And so it starts with the rise of the national security state with, with World War II, and it and it ends with gay people being, you know, finally equal in the sense of being able to have a security clearance, having access to those national yeah. security secrets that they were denied access to uh, for so long. I have one last question, which is really, um, you know, I, I guess more personal, but it, in reporting this book, what was the most challenging piece of it for you to deal with, whether it was material? I mean, you, you worked on this for a long time. Yeah. So I have to imagine there were, there were pieces of it that, you know, were rough to, to work through. You mean just in terms of like the mechanics of it or do you mean like emotionally? Uh, either. Or, what, yeah. I mean the hardest thing for me honestly was just kind of capturing or or uh, accomplishing the prose style that mm. I wanted to achieve because I, I, I have a repertorial background as a journalist, as an opinion journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm used to kind of writing more polemical, argumentative, persuasive pieces this was a challenge. This was this was writing narrative history, yeah. and I'd never done that before. Uh, and it was just a completely different type of writing that I wasn't used to. And what I really did was just kind of immerse myself in the best yeah. narrative history. I mean, Robert Caro to me is kind of the gold standard in that regard. And so I was, as I was writing and researching the book, I was reading. You know, I was I was master of the Senate and in yeah. the whole Johnson series, and I was reading David McCullough, and I was reading other um, historians, not academic historians, popular historians, because yeah. I didn't want to write in kind of academic jargon, right? right? So that yeah. that was the most challenging, honestly. Um, you know, emotionally, it was very difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, reading a lot of these files I had declassified, FBI files, State Department files, uh, and just reading the ways in which people were described or dealt with yeah. by their government. Yeah. Um, I think the most heartbreaking thing I came across was a letter that an, an aide to LBJ, um, who I'm proud to say the story was not known to Robert Caro. He, he was not aware of this man that I write about in the book. I actually told Robert Caro about him. Um, I found his FBI file because they did an investigation on him and he was expelled. He was, he was kicked out of his job. Um, as part of his FBI file was included in it was the the letter that he wrote to the man who outed him to the government. Uh, yeah. And it was such a heartbreaking letter. And, you know, it just made me think about how how many lives were destroyed yeah. by by this 
rational fear, how many careers were court, uh, cut short, how much talent was denied our country, you know, yeah. by patriotic men and women who just wanted to serve their country but, but were denied the opportunity of doing so, such um, such a such a waste. That is a re that is that is the through line. I think is just the the squandering of talent and skill mm -hmm. and and contributions that would have been made but otherwise weren't. Um, Jamie, wh where can everybody find you on the internet? Follow your work. They can get the book. We'll link to Definitely it. Definitely buy the book. You know, I kept thinking. Gosh, I wish there were a whole bunch of mini documentaries uh, sort of portraying each of these vignettes. Uh, well, as, so some, I, as someone who's dealt with this, with Hollywood, yeah. I should say, you know, it's it's very slow moving. So I can't really divulge any details, but we hope there will be various multimedia adaptations of the book coming eventually. I sh that's, yeah, that's, that's what I can say. <laughs> I, will very, I will very much look forward to that. Um, and, and aside from the book and the maybe or maybe not documentaries, um, where can we follow you, find your work? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Jay Kerchick on Twitter, um, tablet and airmail, I would say are the two main places to, to find me. Terrific. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.